Welcome to Cat the Baker. I'm Chef KB. So what gets me going about baking are the smells. I know that's kind of weird. Maybe smells is just a weird word. You know what's a weird word that's associated with baking? Moist. You know what it means. You know what it means when you hear moist, and it's a positive thing. But if you hear it in any other scenario, it's not positive. So like I was saying, what gets me going about baking are the smells. When I put something in the oven and I start to smell it, I know it's about to be done. And it's such a rewarding feeling. When I worked in the cafe in Flagstaff, we never had a great oven and they broke down a few times. I think uh, there were three ovens in the five years I was there. I knew something was about to be done when I started to smell it. And I would tell my associate, when you start to smell it, take it out or be ready to take it out. You don't need to set a timer because the timer would annoy me. In baking, you set so many timers and constantly the timer would go off and it was such an annoying thing. So I tried to train my associates to be sensitive to smells. (laughs) I tried to do the same thing here in Colorado, but here we have a better oven and you can't necessarily smell what's going on in the oven. You have to open it and then the smell comes out. But at that point, if you're not setting a timer, it's too late and the item will probably burn. So I try to teach my associates the same thing. Just don't set a timer, just go by the smell until I realized, no, that doesn't work with this oven. Better ovens are better insulated and you don't necessarily smell right away. When I lived in New York, I didn't always bake very much in the beginning. When I first moved there in 1998 for acting school, I always loved food. I didn't have the money for food in New York. I would buy veggies. I got my own kind of wok and I would stir fry my veggies and usually just eat that after class. And I was working in the library at the time of the school because I was on financial aid. I was trying to make a little money on the side. So I didn't have a chance to really explore the food side of New York at that time. It was more when I started working in New York and making money that I was exploring more food, going to more restaurants and really appreciating that side of it. I didn't really bake too much in the beginning because first of all, I lived in a dorm style place. And then when I moved, this was in Brooklyn, I moved to Jersey City, and I had a roommate at the time and still a very good friend. She was into baking a lot, and she would say, come on, let's let's make some cookies for Christmas to our friends as presents. And I thought, yeah, okay, why not? I got this Martha Stewart magazine, and it had the best cookies in there. It was just a cookies magazine. I got it at Grand Central, and I still have it. It's the best magazine for cookies. We probably tried... I don't know, maybe 20 recipes, like a lot of different recipes, and just started baking all these cookies. And that's when I really realized, you know, yeah, like, I've still got it. (laughs) I can still do it. And it kind of brought back just my joy of baking. And it was because of my roommate at the time. And then I started going to auditions and the uncertainty of if I got it, if I didn't, if I did well, if I sucked. I mean, sometimes it was hard to gauge, you know, because even if I thought I did well, then I wouldn't necessarily hear back from anybody. Or if I did poorly, I would hear back. So there's no rhyme or reason in the acting world. To make myself feel better, I would look forward to baking something after the audition or cooking something. And then when I worked at the restaurant... I made friends 
with people I worked with. And sometimes they would come over and we would bake together or cook together. And then we'd enjoy all the courses. And that was my highlight. If I wasn't able to act on stage or get acting jobs, at least then I could cook or bake. And that was a highlight of my day. And I would get super excited. And I would tell the kitchen manager at the restaurant about all these different things I was making. And he said, well, why don't you work in the kitchen? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is good. I'm going to just do it at home. And that was kind of the beginning of baking in my adulthood. I remember I got this Williams-Sonoma book. It was a small cooking book just on pie. And in it, it had this delicious apple pie recipe. I made the crust. I made the filling with the nutmeg and the cinnamon. And it was just the perfect mix. I put it in the oven. And 45 minutes later, I started smelling the most amazing smell. I turned on the light to see, you know, we didn't want to open it. And I just couldn't wait to eat it. And I had even bought an ice cream maker, a really expensive one from William Sonoma. I think at the time it was almost $400. And I didn't have to freeze anything. You just turned the knob. It started freezing by itself. But this thing was like 25 pounds. It was super heavy. And it only made a pint of ice cream. A super small amount for the weight of the machine. Most of the machine was the freezing mechanism. But I saved up my tip money, you know, my side seating money, I spent it on this ice cream maker. And it was like the highlight for me. I made the cinnamon ice cream with this apple pie and it was beyond gourmet. It was perfect, the best apple pie. And I remember just the smells coming from the oven. If I could recreate a candle that actually smells like this, you know, and doesn't have that kind of fake smell. This is the scent that every home should smell of. It was perfect. I didn't really realize how important food was for me until I started dating. The kind of people I would date were people who weren't into food, who ate ramen, the dollar ramen packs. They would drink too much. Some even smoked. I don't know why I would date these people. It was just nice to be noticed, which sounds really sad, but uh, yeah, I was always into studying and learning techniques of acting and meeting up with my scene partners. Like for me, school was the most important thing because that's the reason I was in New York. I was spending all this money that I had to pay back, so I wanted to make the most of it, which, yeah, that's super responsible, right? That's how it should be. So I wasn't a partier at all. I just went on these horrible dates, especially in acting school. Like I would go out with other actors, which I don't recommend. Basically, never date the same person that you work with, like in the same profession. I don't think it ever ends well, like really. And I would date these actors. I remember this one person that I was really attracted to. He looked like Peter Gallagher. So now everybody go look up what Peter Gallagher looks like. <laughs> I practiced to ask him out with my then roommate for like two weeks before I actually did. I asked him out and I asked him if he wanted to see a movie with me. Why would you go out to a movie on a first date? Because you're just not going to talk, right? So I asked him out at the time Matrix was playing the first one. I mean, this is a while back. He agrees, which I was 
surprised by. I go to the movie theater. He's not there. You know, I go there like an hour early because in New York at the time, I mean, movies fill fast, especially The Matrix. <laughs> so I got two movie tickets and that was like the $20 I had. After that, I didn't have any more money. He shows up late and he's like, yeah, I'm really hungry. Can we just stop somewhere? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, eager to please. See, that's my problem. I was always eager to please to a point that never made me feel good about myself. It's like I never had dates. I never dated anybody. So even the worst person who would notice me, I'd be like, hi, <laughs> which is terrible, right? He passes Taco Bell. And I said, uh, oh, I used to work at Taco Bell. And he's like, cool. Do you want to eat here? And I'm thinking, uh, no, like, geez. And we go in. <laughs> He orders like 10 things because everything's a dollar. You know, it's Taco Bell. I'm thinking, uh, I don't have any more money. I spent it on your movie ticket. At the very end, he's about to pay. And he says, oh, did you want something? And I say, um, yeah, I'll take the 99 cent nachos because I think I still had a dollar if he made me pay, you know? Here he is eating so many different things. Like the whole table's filled because he's eating everything, like one bite of each. And I'm, my mouth is super dry from these nachos because I don't have any water or anything else. <laughs> like it was the worst. <laughs> and then we go to this movie theater. The previews are playing. He asks, guess how old I am? Like just randomly. At the time I was 20 and I knew he was older. I say, 25. He's like, no, guess again. Basically, he's 32. He was 32 at the time, which if you're 32 dating a 20-year-old or going to a movie with a 20-year-old, what's wrong with you? I mean, come on. And I paid for his movie ticket. Even worse, this was the type of guy I was seeing. Obviously, we just saw a movie and that was it. And even weirder is that in acting school, he ended up playing my father in this play I was in. So I'm like, oh, great. Now he's playing my dad. Probably because he looked so old. <laughs> and I felt, I'm just going to stick to my books. Like, this is pointless. And it was just a string of bad dates. There was this guy that I was seeing. Apparently, he just stopped seeing this other woman. And he showed interest in me. So we went on a couple dates. But then his ex wanted him back and he dumped me. So I was super like down and, and he talked to me for like an hour as he was dumping me. And then I go into the subway. He like waves goodbye. And I turn around, I wave. I'm walking toward the subway. I turn back around. I hit this giant pole that's in the middle of the platform. I hit it hard. Like, you know when you've been hit in the face by a basketball, which also happened to me a lot growing up? That's the feeling. And to know that he saw all this, ugh, so embarrassing. And I turn around and he's laughing so hard. Like, first of all, he dumps me. Then he can't stop laughing. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so typical of what happens to me. Yeah. After that, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to focus on my classes. One thing that opened me more up to food in New York was restaurant week. They did it twice a year. And I remember at the time, Robert De Niro had a restaurant in Tribeca, and they took part in restaurant week. Basically, you could have 
a starter, a main course, and a dessert for $20. It was like super cheap. So I would take part in the restaurant week and it was great. As a student or as a person that didn't make very much money, this was a nice way to experience New York dining on some level. It wasn't until I was in the kitchen and started to be a chef myself, I started realizing, wow, cooking is sexy. I know that maybe sounds weird, but if you are confident in what you're doing, there's a sexiness about it. When I see chefs kind of flip the pan, you know, they don't use spatulas, they, they flip the pan to move the items in the pan around, then you could see their forearms. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is sexy. And that's when I started dating chefs, which again, like I said, don't date the field you're in. And I basically dated a string of chefs. Never in my life before had I eaten such good food. That was the plus side. But the negative side was there's a certain type of person that works in the kitchen. Typically, chefs are control freaks. I mean, yeah, I admit I, you know, I have my control issues, especially in pastry. You have to plan like weeks ahead because a cake can take four days depending on how many layers you put on it. So please, you have to plan ahead. <laughs> Chefs also tend to drink a lot, possibly drugs. Not me. You know, I'm pretty straight-laced. My thing is um, I'm addicted to sugar. And also chefs work long hours. So in the end, you never see each other. You just kind of meet in the walk-in, do weird smiles as you pass each other, or try and do a quick kiss in the storage room. You know, and that's that's it, really. And then you just see each other once a week, once every two weeks, even though you're working together. Like, it was kind of sad. So, again, my dating life was not very much there. After I got divorced, I limited carbs and sugar. I went on this cleanse, and I lost, like, 50 pounds. And it was after that that people started, men, started noticing me, which was also a bit depressing for me because when I was heavier, I wouldn't really get noticed. And then all of a sudden I lost weight. Okay, now, now I'm noticeable. So that put me off too. And living in Arizona, instead of going to LA, I would go to Las Vegas. I probably went there, I don't know, every few months because in Vegas you have theater and you have some of the best food in the country, which is weird because it's the desert. You wouldn't think you would have the best seafood, but it's all there. Vegas is crazy. I would go and see Cirque du Soleil, which sounds funny, but their shows are so good. The amazing thing is in Las Vegas, you have a theater that's built just for the show. Whereas in New York, you know, it's the same theater and it's it was built like early 1900s, sometimes late 1800s, which are beautiful, but they're very old, they're very narrow, not comfortable seats. In Las Vegas, it's the opposite. Obviously, they're modern and they're built around the show. So it's a huge spectacle and the theater is massive. So I would love to see shows in Las Vegas. And along with that comes really good food. I love to go to the Aria. There's a Jean-Philippe patisserie, which they have chocolates, they have gelato, they have crepe, they have these delicious desserts. And I would basically binge at Jean-Philippe patisserie, have five items instead of three. You know, like that's how good it was. And then the next day I would go to a different patisserie at a different hotel. And there you can just go to a different hotel. I mean, each hotel is so big. 
that you get lost in it. I mean, there's all these different restaurants and all these different clubs and places to go. Like, you literally get lost. There's a reason they don't put windows inside these hotels because they want you to get lost in them. They want you to spend your money in these hotels. So, yeah, I would go to Las Vegas and that's when I really got more and more into the food. Obviously, at that point, I was in the industry, so I was more aware of all the food and the new places to eat and things like that. But I really enjoyed Las Vegas. Of course, through all this, this was after the divorce, so I was living with my mom in Arizona. I was just trying to build a life of my own. You know, living with your mom is not sexy. But yeah, how am I going to meet people? How am I going to build a life of my own if I'm just living with family? You know, and I just felt like, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die alone. Like it was just this cloud looming over me. I felt like I've been talking about just this struggle, trying to balance being there for my family, yet having my own life. And it was hard work. You know, I worked two jobs. I came home. I cooked for my mom. I walked the dogs. I fed the cats. I mean, it wasn't just my mom. She had all these other pets, which I loved, but they all needed to be taken care of. And I did that. Every day, I would walk the dogs in the forest, which was a routine, and it became really nice. But it still took time, and I was just so tired. And every day, I would wake up at 4.30 a.m. And if you just do this every day plus trying to have a social life. It was impossible. And then ultimately, the dates I had never worked out. Nothing would go anywhere. I would always be disappointed. In that time, I decided to get a tattoo. I was never really into tattoos. I thought, yeah, I want to have some art on me. So I decided to get a hand tattoo. In 2008, I decided to meet my ex-roommate from New York. She lived in India for two years, and I visited her there. And it was such a memorable experience for me, going up the temples, eating the food. I've always loved Indian food. In England, my family would always go to eat Indian, and I grew up just really loving the flavors, and England has amazing Indian food. So when I went to India, everything was wow. You know, I wanted to experience everything. I was there for about 10 days, I just fell in love with, you know, the culture, the food. That's why when I decided to get a hand tattoo, it was a tattoo of a henna. I have a couple experiences of being in India that jumped out at me. And one of them is um, I took an overnight train with my friend. It was the craziest thing because the train, first of all, there was this huge fan above me and there were two tiers like there was a lower bunk and the upper bunk and I was on the upper bunk and this huge fan was right above me so I couldn't really sit up but there were these like giant cobwebs on the fan I'm like oh yeah that's like <laughs> not clean and then at the same time the train is just packed you know so in some of these bunks there's like a whole family this guy going through the train, he's selling chai and he's like, chai, chai. He's going up and down the train and I can hear him as he's doing that. And I had some chai and it was the best chai. To this day, this is my favorite chai on this Indian train. And also there were no windows on the train. So it's super humid. It's hot on the train. That's why there's these dusty fans blowing. But you just have bars on the train. There's no like window. It's just open. It's either open 
and there's light or it's closed because you have these kind of shutters to close it and then it's dark. But this experience was the craziest thing. It was just everything that was so different from what I knew. And that's the thing about India. It's so different. For example, I was always being followed because somebody was always trying to sell me something. Even monkeys followed me because they wanted bananas. Like... <laughs> And then these kids were following me because they wanted me to take pictures with them. At the time, I just used a regular camera. They weren't too familiar with cameras. So they just wanted me to take pictures and then look at themselves in the picture. And they all looked so serious when we took these pictures. Like they wouldn't smile or anything. It was just all of a sudden, like straight face. Another experience was we were driving on this dusty road. We just went to the city of temples and then we drove back and it was this crazy dusty road, all these potholes. Like that's the thing, taking a train in India is faster than driving because the road conditions aren't great. But then we were hungry and we stopped at this little local place and it was in between dinner, like lunch and dinner, but there they eat dinner really late and they serve, they're called snacks, basically starting from lunch till eight or 9 p.m. and then you start dinner like late so we had these snacks and they're usually like fried things and we had dosas which is this huge crispy like savory fried bread and then you get five different dipping sauces and they're delicious and you just dip into these sauces like it's super filling but I remember this dosa was the size of maybe three times the size of my face like it was giant and we all ordered one and it was delicious but that was the first time I had a dosa but now every time I see dosa, I'm like, yes, I want it. And then the most amazing experience that I had in India was there was this temple and it was at the top of the city. So basically from the temple, you had the view of the whole city. But there were 108 steps to go up to the temple, basically the same amount as on prayer beads. And on each step, there was a person standing and there was a chant every time you moved up a step. So every person in unison said this chant, and there was a person over a speaker that was also saying this chant so that people knew what to say. And I was on one of these steps, and 108 times you say this chant, and you move up a step together. And then when you're at the top, you ring a bell. Basically, you've arrived at the temple. And then you go in and... You can see the whole city. These giant doors are open and you can just see this beautiful city and people sitting there and just taking it all in. This chant really just opened you up. And I got to the temple inside of it and I was so overwhelmed by this feeling of just like gratefulness. And it was so beautiful. And then... Of course, they had these delicious offerings, which were all desserts. And I love Indian desserts, especially gulab jamun, which are these kind of deep fried cheese balls. It comes from the cheese curd from milk. And then you add a few other things and spices and you deep fry them. And they're soaked in this sweet, like syrupy sauce. So they had all these offerings that made everything perfect, of course, ending it with dessert. But that moment when I arrived at the temple, it just really stuck with me. Like these people that I saw in India, they had nothing. 
Like some of them literally had nothing. Most of them had nothing. It was either super poor or super rich. It was hard to find kind of an in-between. But they were so different than people in Europe or the U.S. They were so grateful. You know, they were genuine. Even though they had nothing, they were still happy. Like their eyes, the, their expression on their face was completely different. And that was what really stuck with me. It was super interesting and surprising. I came back to the U.S. and, and I thought, wow, like so different. You know, because here or even Europe, I mean, people are never really truly happy trying to find what makes us happy. But the thing is, it's a choice, right? I can choose how I'm going to be that day based on my own mindset. I have so many things to be grateful for and happy for. So it's a choice within me. If we're always looking for technology or other people to make us happy, that's probably not going to last, right? Like, you just have to look within yourself and make a choice every day to be grateful for something, to just decide Yes, I'm going to be happy today. And I've started doing that, and it's really been uplifting and very surprising. But looking back on India, that really stuck with me. And I loved the people there. You know, they were just very genuine and pure. And because I was feeling so kind of down at the time that... Back in Arizona when I got my tattoo... I wanted something positive to remind me, you know, so the henna represents new beginnings, happiness, and all these positive things, and I thought, yeah, that's what I want. So I got this henna tattoo on my hand, which uh, is kind of crazy for a first tattoo, you know, to get that on your hand. I also got a nose piercing, I think, like in the same month. My mom thought I was having some sort of mental crisis. And my dad asked, uh, so how long will that tattoo stay? I'm like, Dad, uh, forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, my family didn't approve of my rebelness. I've never been a rebel. So if this is me being a rebel, then okay. And it was through working in the cafe in Flagstaff that I gained some recognition locally there was a local newspaper. They did an article on my pastries. I was in a Arizona magazine. More and more people started to come to the cafe to eat my pastries. And that was really rewarding. And like I said, the nice thing was at the cafe that I could just make what I wanted. But there were no benefits involved. There was no vacation time. So if I didn't work, then I wouldn't get paid. I thought, hmm... This isn't like a long-term thing, you know, and ultimately, if it wasn't for my mom, I probably would have left a lot sooner. But it was two and a half years into that job that the mixer at work broke. The owners thought that I intentionally broke it to get a new mixer. Why would I break something intentionally that I use every day, you know? If like, if you're a computer engineer and your computer breaks down, I mean, you need that. So it's the same in pastry. You need a mixer for everything, like literally. So there was this big kind of conflict, them thinking that I did it intentionally. And after that, I thought, oh my God, like I've been here two and a half years. 
put this place on the map as far as pastry is concerned, now you're thinking, oh, I'm doing this intentionally. So that really upset me. That's when I started looking into other things. I applied. This is a funny one. I saw this application at the Royal Buckingham Palace in London. They were looking for a pastry chef. So I applied for that. I thought, okay, this is a long shot from a cafe to Buckingham Palace. But, you know, why not? If you don't try, you'll never know. So I applied to the Buckingham Palace and I actually got a response. It was an email with the royal seal on it, basically saying I didn't get the job. But I thought, wow, that's so nice. They responded. I also applied to the White House as a pastry chef. I didn't get that. It's so funny thinking about it. Like, I really went big. I went all the way. <laughs> so <laughs> you just got to go for it, you know? I didn't get either of those jobs. And that's when I started thinking, all right, I want, I want something more. I wanted something else. And it was through the cafe, that word of mouth. And it was through word of mouth that I got the culinary instructor position in Sedona, which I really enjoyed. It was a brand new kitchen, and I didn't realize how much I enjoyed teaching students. Being in the kitchen, doing what you do every day, there's a monotony to it, but there's also a routine. You know what you're doing, and you just go through it. You go through all the steps. It's until you have a crowd that doesn't know anything, pretty much, that you have to explain all the steps, and you take all those steps for granted. I really felt good because I inspired them to go home and bake and we would try certain things in class and then they would go home and try that with different flavors and then they, they would take pictures and then show me the next day and it was really nice it was really encouraging to see what a difference I made in that way and of course the cafe felt betrayed that I had this other side job I don't think I would have made it the full five years at the cafe if I didn't have this job in Sedona. It was really a breath of fresh air for me. And of course it paid better. The only thing was it paid seasonally, so it wasn't all year. So I still needed the job at the cafe. Anyway, it was two and a half years into my job at the cafe that I started to look into chocolate. And I thought, every job I've had there's never really been an opportunity to do a lot of chocolate work. First of all, anything to do with chocolate is expensive. Chocolate itself is expensive. Even though if you've ever seen any documentary on chocolate, the farmers themselves that harvest chocolate only make a dollar a day or less. If they're lucky, maybe a dollar fifty. I don't know. Maybe that's too much. It's like diamonds, you know what I mean? And chocolate's kind of the same way. It's limited, it's controlled on what goes out and how much. Anything about chocolate, like the, the warming boxes, the tempering machines. I mean, one of those machines is $8,000 to $13,000. And maybe that's on the low side, you know, depending on the machine. So the equipment is super expensive. And then when I worked at the hotel in Palm Springs, it was crazy hot, in the kitchen that no way would you be able to temper chocolate. It would go right out of temper because of the heat in the kitchen. So I pretty much had to buy a lot of chocolate work if I wanted to use it. Or I just had so many other things to do in pastry 
that there was no chance to really do the proper chocolate work. So I thought, I want to be able to do more of this and know more about it myself. You know, I had taken some classes before on chocolate, and I had done a couple of chocolate sculptures, but they were small scale. You know, in culinary school, we did a whole module on chocolate. Like anything, it went by fast. So I googled the top 10 chocolate companies in Switzerland. And that's when this company, Lederach, came up. I'd heard of them before. I think it was just like on one product, nothing, nothing major. And I went on their website and it said they were looking for a chocolatier. So I sent my application. Of course, they're looking for a chocolatier in Switzerland, not like the US, right? But I sent my resume. It's all in English. I'm like, okay, I'll just send this. Three days later... The secretary contacts me through email saying that the owner would like to speak with me and have an interview. And I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. I mean, yes, I didn't really expect to hear back from Buckingham Palace or the White House, but I really didn't expect to hear back from this chocolate company either. <laughs> so <laughs> four days later, the owner contacts me on Skype. And even though I've always spoken German at home with my family, a lot of it is also Jinglish. You know what I mean? If I can't think of a German word, I'll say the English. Englishify the German word. And that's not even right. Like, <laughs> so I was a little bit nervous about this interview. And because I was nervous, some of the German words escaped. And then part of the interview was English. And I got super warm and I felt like I was getting red, but I just focused. And anyway, this was Elias Lederach who called me, who is the owner, one of the owners of the chocolate company in Switzerland. And he said, you know, he looked at my resume. He basically told me they're opening up a store in New York. What if I were the chocolatier for it? Is that something I'd be interested in? I thought, hmm. In my head, I'm like, no, I don't want <laughs> I didn't want to move to New York. But I thought, well, you know. Um, I asked, would I be traveling to Switzerland to learn about the process? And he's like, yeah, you could visit Switzerland for a couple of months. And then I answered, yes, I'm interested. Like, <laughs> how crazy is that? I wasn't really interested in the job per se. I was just interested in going to Switzerland to learn about the whole chocolate process. Anyway, I said I was interested. This whole process took two and a half years with this chocolate company because the store they were building on Fifth Avenue had all these crazy construction issues. They were importing the marble from Italy and just all these crazy building issues. So I kept emailing, you know, every few months being like, how's it going? You know, not like that, but I would send pictures of my work just to kind of let them know that I was interested. And I would always get a response, but mainly it was just like construction issues and that it was being postponed. And I just felt so, like I felt positive about this company, but also thought I had something solid, you know, somebody that was interested in me. But at the same time, I didn't know anything. I was completely in the dark and nobody would contact me if I didn't reach out. So about two years later, so now I've been working at the cafe for four years. I get contacted that they want an interview with me in New York. So they fly me to New York. And this was the first time that I was visiting New York again since 
2006. At this point, it was 2019. The city had changed, but also not. The buildings were more modernized. Some of the stores were different, different types of foods or chains. Some chains that I loved before were gone. And I was so thrilled to be there because I planned my whole day around food. I would eat everything that I couldn't in Arizona. And of course, in New York, you readily had all these imported foods, you know, if you wanted them as ingredients. For example, I love ramen. I love Thai food. You know, everything was in New York, anything you wanted food-wise, like Ethiopian. I mean, there's no problem finding anything. So I would just walk the city and arrange my whole day from one food to the next. I was totally binging and it was amazing. And then I had this interview. We spoke for about an hour and a half with the CEO of the company in the U.S. He basically said, like full on, he said, I'm the only candidate. And we spoke for an hour and a half. It was positive. It was so positive that after the interview, I went two blocks up the street and ate caviar. Like I literally felt this positive about it that I ate caviar. I mean, I don't just eat caviar. Like I just spent $50 on this little thing of caviar because I was like, yeah, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to go to Switzerland for three months. Like that was my highlight. I felt really good about it, you know? Next day I fly back to Arizona and I don't hear anything. Like it took, I wanna say three months, like a, a really long time for just having had an interview. And then one day I get an email saying, like no particular email, it was just like a regular rejection email. Nothing handwritten, nothing like, you know, you've been waiting like two and a half years for this but basically saying we decided to go with somebody else and I like reread it you know how sometimes negative things happen and everything gets fuzzy <laughs> and you have to reread just to make sure that it wasn't a nightmare I reread it like five times and I felt so disrespected by how it was written that it wasn't personalized it was so just vague. And after all this time, after all this communication on my end, all of a sudden I was rejected. And I thought, oh my God, like what, what is happening? You know, everything was turned around. I decided, okay, I have to deal with this. I was super upset. And I decided to go to Sedona to go hiking. You know, I thought I'm going to go hiking and just thinking there has to be a reason that I didn't get this. And just being alone with myself and the dirt. <laughs> and I had the most amazing hike. I went for four hours. It was beautiful. I love Sedona. You know what's funny is that I was never into hiking. When I lived in New York the first time, when I moved to LA, people would ask me to hike with them. I'm like, no, like why? Why do I want to hike? And then after my divorce in Arizona, I totally get it. I totally got into the hiking thing and I loved it. And especially when I was teaching in Sedona, even sometimes before I taught, I would go on a crazy early morning hike because it gets really hot in Sedona during the day. 
So I would get there at like 5 a.m. and go on this four-hour hike and then teach the class. And I felt super tired, yes, but also rejuvenated at the same time. Sedona is just picturesque and beautiful. So I go on this hike. You know, I just let it go. I'm like, okay, there's, there's something for me. If it's not this, it's something else. Of course, next to this the whole time, I was in Flagstaff helping my mom and doing everything else, you know, as well as working. I drive back from Sedona on the main highway back to Flagstaff. I'm almost in town. I'm almost there. And the roads are like kind of slippery, but I'm not driving particularly fast. You know, I just, I went from the outside lane to the inside lane and my car lost control. I hydroplaned, my car totally turns to the right. I probably overcorrected in the process, I don't remember. And then it shifts, it totally flips. I was driving an SUV and it flips through the median. The car rolls twice. In this process, I'm in the car, the side airbags deploy, the glass is breaking, all my baking stuff is like rolling around in the car and rolling out the windows. I had this toolkit, my knives were in there, it wasn't closed, so the knives started coming out. I could have been stabbed, you know, I could have fully died in several ways during this whole thing, which... That's crazy to think about. Um, <laughs> like, that sucks, right? <laughs> like, you're already in a car accident. Your car is rolling, and then you have knives in the car? Like, that would be the worst. My car is rolling twice, fully rolls over. I see cars coming from the other direction. I'm fully expecting them to hit me. I'm already hearing that sound. They don't. They stop. My car is upside down. A couple people from the other cars get out and they help me through the windshield. I go out the windshield. I'm totally in shock. I mean, what just happened? For in a split second. Like seriously, the worst things happen so fast. And I had this cut on my hand and there was blood. I thought, oh my God, like, is everything else okay? How is everything else, you know? And the firemen come, they check me, they see the blood on my hand, and obviously, you know, my blood pressure's a little high. <laughs> but other than that, I'm okay. I wasn't meant to die in that moment. I could have died super easily. Like someone else... I know his friend was in a car accident, but the difference was he rolled through the median, but as he was rolling, the top of the car like hit the side plank and it hit the top of the car where the driver's head was. You know, there was a dent from the top of the car and it pushed against his head. And he basically fell into a coma and died. People die the most ridiculous and stupid ways. I totally could have died this way. I could have double died 
First with the accident, second with the knives. I didn't have anything on me. I mean, yeah, I was shaken up and yeah, my body didn't feel that great. You know, it felt very achy and bruised and I did have bruises. But this accident compared to my first accident where I was a mess, you know, I was totally not functioning properly. I would get dizzy a lot and I'd have to sleep a lot or I'd pass out. This accident was not that at all. I literally just had a scratch on me and the car saved me. I mean, yes and no, it was an SUV, so it was taller. Had it been a different car, it probably wouldn't have flipped like that, but it was very sturdy. The seat was very sturdy. It was a well-made car and it saved me. And that was such a crazy moment. Like first I get rejected from this job that I thought was like a sure thing. And then I get in this car accident. People say that bad things come in threes. I was like, what's the third thing? And it was around that same time that my dog died. She was having some breathing issues. I brought her to the vet. She basically had to be on oxygen. All her organs were failing. Cassie died in my arms. We suspect that she ate some rat poison. No one can say for sure. And she died along that same time frame. So yeah, I guess bad things do come in threes. Every time when I try and make something good of a situation, something works out. But in this case, nothing worked out. I just let it all go. I let it all go and said, okay, I can't control any of this. None of this is in my hands. You know, all I can do is put out my resume, put out things that I could see myself doing, things that I enjoy doing, and that's it. And I think it was a couple weeks later that I wrote to the owner of the chocolate company. And I said, I'm really, I'm really disappointed that I didn't get this job. But ultimately, I do want to learn more about chocolate. I want to come to Switzerland and see the factory and learn about chocolate. I'll pay my own way. If you can just pay me an hourly wage and I'll go there for three months. Three months was the conversation because you don't need a visa for that time. Even though I have a German passport, so it wasn't an issue if I wanted to stay longer, but I would just have to fill out more paperwork. So 90 days coming from the US to Europe is a pretty normal time. So I said, let me just come there for three months. I'll find a place to stay. I'll pay for the flight if I can work in your chocolate factory. This car accident made me more determined than ever. I knew that I made it through this car accident for a reason, and I saw how easily everything could have changed and I could have died. And now I thought, this is going to happen. I'm going to make this happen. He tried to dissuade me. He, <laughs> he said, factory work is very monotonous. Um, it's not creative at all. I don't think you would enjoy it. And I responded, I'm well aware of factory work. I know it maybe isn't super exciting, 
but I'm willing to see what it's all about. If we could just discuss some sort of hourly wage, I would appreciate it. This went back and forth for a few months. He said, okay, we'll pay you this much for hourly wage, which was the same that I was being paid at the cafe, like not very much. But I thought, okay, if I can make do with this amount here, I'm sure I can make do with that amount there. When would you want to come? And I said, January 2020. And that was it. He said, okay. You know, they sent me this paperwork. I filled it out. Then I booked my flight to Switzerland. My flight to Switzerland was cheap. I found it for like $220. It was off season. It was not a direct flight. It was going through London, which was weird to be in England again after also so many years of not being there. But the strange thing is every time I'm in England, I have an English accent because, I mean, that's where I grew up. That's where I used to live. So when I'm buying something at the store, I'll start with my English accent. <laughs> um, and then I brought my old English money that wasn't even valid anymore. They're like, um, I'm sorry, but we don't take this. We don't take this money anymore. <laughs> you have to exchange it at a bank. And I thought, okay, I haven't been here in a while. Sure, they've changed the money. So I flew to Switzerland and I was just ready for a new beginning. And then I started working in the factory and every two weeks they would bring me to a different part of the factory. For a week I would do packaging of all the products, which are all packaged by hand. I thought it was like machinery and factory style, you know, done by machines, but it's not. They did it all by hand. And then for a couple of weeks, I went to like organizing truffles where you fill the actual mold and it gets put on a conveyor belt and then you package it at the end of it. And I basically saw all the inside outs of the factory, which to me was pretty amazing. And it was in this process a month and a half later that COVID started like six different floors. And on each level, there are pipes with chocolate running through them so that each department can get fresh chocolate. And the whole factory smelled of chocolate. I felt very intimidated because I didn't know much about chocolate. I had worked so many different jobs. I knew so many different things about pastry. And here I was feeling like, okay, now I know nothing anymore. And the Swiss people, some were friendly, some were not. And they just looked at me like, what am I doing here? I know nothing. And, uh, but at the same time, yes, I didn't know much about this field, but that's why I was here to learn. You know, why did I get intimidated? Because I know so much. I know so much about all these other things. This is why I'm here to expand my field. But it's always like you're starting something new and it feels like the first day of class. You know, when I was back in England, I couldn't speak the language. Everybody was looking at me strange. It was that all over again. And I felt like this little kid all over again. But I learned so much in that factory. I learned so much about chocolate and being there firsthand was valuable. They have two different factories, one where they finish everything. They do all the finishing touches. They fill the truffles and package. And then there's another factory where they produce the actual chocolate. And I worked there for a couple weeks. I saw the whole process when the beans 
come in from the different countries, how it goes through the magnetizer. You know, sometimes when these beans arrive, they have rocks in them, sand, just random metal pieces. And then it goes through this whole process of cracking the cacao shell, turning them into nibs, taking the shell out, which they save the shells and they give them to the farmers, which in turn makes their soil better. You can also use the cacao shells for tea. So if you've ever had chocolate tea, it's very mild in flavor, but it has a really nice chocolate flavor. And then in the factory, it goes into the roasting process where all these nibs are roasted. And then it goes into this huge vat. It gets ground and it goes into this vat and you have pure cacao mass. And that mass is then used to make the official chocolate where they add sugar to it, they add cocoa butter, they add milk powder. And then that's how you get your milk chocolate. I made white chocolate, I made milk chocolate, and I made dark chocolate. And obviously dark chocolate doesn't have the milk powder. What's special about this chocolate is the amount of cocoa butter added. The more cocoa butter added, the creamier your product. The thing is, cocoa butter is one of the most expensive ingredients in chocolate. So that's where a lot of companies save. If the product is not very creamy, then not a lot of cocoa butter was added to it if it's dark chocolate. For example, what makes milk chocolate creamy is the cocoa butter, but you don't have to add as much to it because you have your milk powder. You don't have to add too much cocoa butter. But with dark chocolate, what makes it so creamy is the cocoa butter. This is where I started to really taste the difference between cheap chocolate. For example, in the US, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of cheap chocolate because people don't know what chocolate should taste like. People don't know that a lot of the flavor comes from the soil, the terroir. It's like when you have wine, same thing from the grapes. You know, different regions have different flavor profiles. That makes sense. Every region where you grow cacao, you have other different plants that will add to the flavor profile. For instance, maybe Madagascar, you have more citrus or vanilla. This affects the flavor of your cacao bean. Or in Ghana, you have tobacco that's growing. You have coffee. You know, so there's a very different flavor profile. It's a lot heavier in flavor versus your fruitiness. I learned a lot about these different chocolates. I really enjoyed learning that whole side of it and tasting fresh chocolate right when it was made, you know, and seeing that whole process. So another reason that chocolate becomes creamy is from conching. Conching is one of the most important processes of making chocolate. What happens is the darker the chocolate, the longer you have to conch it. Basically, a conch in a factory is a huge washing machine almost. It spins round and around. It makes the chocolate creamier, more velvety. It also takes out the impurities 
So for example, these conches are huge. It's like the size of half a room. I mean, depending on how big your room is. On one side of the conch, it won't smell very good because this like earthiness is coming out, these impurities. It's like when you fermented something, let's say pickles, and you smell the sweetness of it, but you also smell the vinegary side of it. There's something the nose likes and something that's off-putting, and it's the same with chocolate. If you go to one side of the conch, it's very acidic smelling, and on the other side of the conch, there's this sweetness and the way that chocolate should smell. So the darker the chocolate, the longer you have to conch it, sometimes maybe 24 hours to 48 hours, depending on the bean. You can over-conch something, and you basically distort the flavor. You can take out too much flavor. But that whole process was very interesting to me. And a lot of companies, they save money by not doing the process the right way. Because ultimately, the consumer doesn't necessarily know the right way, you know, depending where you are. Like in the U.S., there's a lot of cheap chocolate for the masses. It's very sweet. There's more sugar in it. There's less cocoa butter. It's very, like, grimy tasting, sandy. And that's when you know it hasn't been conched long enough. Also, that's when you know there's more sugar in it than cocoa butter. And also, another factor would be if the sugar was not ground finely enough. In this factory, they use granulated sugar, but it has to be ground super, super, super fine so that when the chocolate melts on your mouth, you don't even taste the sugar granules. And some companies, they don't go through this process because it takes a few hours just to have this sugar be super fine. That they maybe just take an hour instead of three for the full process. So as the chocolate is melting on your tongue, you still taste this sugar and it's sandy and it's not pleasant. So that's another factor. Also, many companies that try to save money when producing chocolate use palm oil instead of cocoa butter. So if at the end of eating chocolate or letting it melt in your mouth, you feel this kind of fake creaminess, it doesn't go away. It's kind of oily creamy. That's when you know that the company has used palm oil. And that is also a factor, a huge factor for deforestation. Also, palm oil is a lot cheaper than cocoa butter. So it's interesting if you taste chocolate and all these components that I've listed, you should go and taste other companies and see which one is a high quality and which one is not. But I learned all these things and after being in the chocolate factory for two weeks, that's when I was offered the job in New York. And I thought, why are you offering this to me? Like I was completely surprised because here I had made peace with it. You know, I went through this crazy accident. I went through all these changes. You know, okay, I'm gonna come to Switzerland and then after that travel to Morocco and then see all these places. And that was something I was excited about. And then after being at this factory for two weeks, they were like re-offering me the job. And I thought, is this a joke? Is this for real? And they said, right, well, you made all this effort to come out here and we realized, you know, you're a good worker and we realized you're a good person for this job. I thought, okay, like, <laughs> how twisted is life? 
for real. I said, okay, I'll do the job after I'm done with my traveling. Of course, then COVID happened and uh, I never got to travel to those other countries. But it was because I was offered the job, finally, the second time around for real, that I was able to continue working there through COVID. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had work, which would have been the same had I stayed in the U.S. The cafe would have closed and I wouldn't have had work and I would have been right back to square one. And that's when I knew I did the right thing. I did the right thing making the choices I did. And I was really proud of myself. I was proud of myself for following through, for not letting this accident get to me, for not letting this horrible thing with my dog get to me. I mean, of course, these things got to me. They affected me. But they also made me stronger. Life can take you down so easily in a split second. How do you get out of that? How do you recover from that? You know, you have to find your own center. And for me, that's hiking and baking. It's finding my own peace in my mind so that I'm not overthinking everything. I'm overthinking everything, and I know that. But hiking gives me this balance, and it takes me out of this crazy day. It was through the car accident that I realized, okay, I'm not injured nothing's broken. And it was after that point that I thought, okay, you know, I surrender. I tried so hard to get to this chocolate factory. And everything I did was almost impossible. It was after I got rejected that I just said, you know what? I just want to work there. I just said what I wanted. I didn't try to hide it anyway. Because the worst that somebody can say is, no, like, we're done with you, go away. And they didn't. They still said, okay. I mean, yes, it took my resilience and stubbornness to keep responding. In the end, I got what I wanted. I learned about chocolate and I grew as a chef as well as a person. I had to. You know, this was a sign to me that I have to do what I feel is right. I have to do what is important to me because life is short. And I think what this car accident taught me was just get out of my own way and just be present. That's my full journey to how I got to Switzerland. You know, something else is always going to come along. But always check in with yourself. Is this worth it? Is this what you want? You know, we all have our own agendas. We all have our own things that we want. And then how do you most make that happen in the best way possible, in the easiest possible way? You know, not everything has to be a struggle. You know, sometimes you don't have to make things happen. It's when you try and bend something that it becomes a nightmare. I just wanted to get out of this cafe so bad. I wanted to get out of my life, out of my own way so bad that I tried to bend to make this chocolate job happen. Ultimately, it did, but, you know, in the most unexpected way possible. So what I'm saying is just be open for that. 
Not everything has to be planned. Not everything can be planned because life doesn't work like that. But it's through the pain, it's through the struggle that other things open up and are much more valuable in the end because of that struggle. I'm not saying that I want to experience pain just to have something good happen to me, no. But the hope is that I learn through these experiences so that I don't have to keep experiencing this kind of pain and this kind of struggle. You know, that I can just be open for things to change and not try to steer it in a certain way. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed what I've had to say and maybe it's resonated some meaning for you in your own life. Thank you so much. I'm Chef KB, and this was an episode of Cat the Baker. Please join me on Instagram at Chef KB or on YouTube at Cat the Baker. <laughs>